0: Welcome to the We Raise the Stars and Stripes Over Japan podcast. This is episode number four. My name is Mark Steven Schwartz, and it is both an honor and a privilege for me to read for you the diaries of Allied and American civilian prisoners of war interned in and around Kobe, Japan during the Great Pacific War, World War II. We're going to continue with December 10th, 1941, Dean Brunton. The island was captured almost without a struggle. Although the military forces made a brave defense within an hour, almost all firing had ceased, and most of the defenders had been captured. I held out for one day and on the following morning was persuaded by my wife to surrender. In the grounds before the government house, on the flagpole where the stars and stripes had flown for 43 years, I saw the ensign of the Imperial Japanese Navy. I was welcomed by two machine gunners and two infantrymen with fixed bayonets. It was a ticklish moment, but after a brief examination, I was escorted into an ancient Spanish building that had held prisoners long before the coming of Americans to Guam. Above the arch door was the coat of arms of Spain and the date 1743. Inside were most of the other American nationals, both military and civilians. Walter Buddy Durham. The Marines and I, still attached by ropes, arrived in the center of Agaña where the rest of the Navy and Marine Corps had surrendered. All Americans were separated from their families and put into the Catholic Church there in the center of town, which was about one block from my house. Charles F. Gregg. They fed us a ball of rice for dinner and we slept on the cement floor and pool table in the recreation room of the Marines. The three groups were divided at this time, but four days later they were again united when placed in the Agonia Cathedral. Max Berdowski. The island was captured and occupied by the Japanese forces. All Americans imprisoned. At first in the Navy hospital, then in the Catholic Church. The Japanese finally imprisoned the 500 Americans which included all the military and civilian personnel of the island. We were at first held at the Navy hospital where the Japanese had machine guns trained on us for four days. Then they relaxed. Harold Brinkerhoff. We were served a good supper. I had not realized it had been 10 hours since I had eaten. So much had happened. I had forgotten to be hungry. We were packed in like so many sardines. That night, I slept on the cement floor under a table. We received our first education in the Japanese language. The first word was benjo, which means toilet. The latrine was out in an enclosed courtyard. To get permission to go to the head, we had to go to the guard at the door, bow Japanese fashion, and say benjo. No bow, no permission. So ended my liberty in the longest day of my life. I was so tired I slept regardless of the cement floor and the fetid atmosphere." Charles F. Gregg Guam, Wednesday morning, December 10, 1941. Pamphlets dropped from Japanese planes. Imperial Japanese forces with 500 warplanes have already captured the island of Luzon. Raise up your white flags and your lives and property will not be destroyed. This was after the island had been surrendered. Shimazu, with Japanese soldiers, went around to Ganya instructing people to display a Japanese flag, telling them to make one, if necessary, out of a bedsheet or white cloth by putting a rising sun of red ink or iodine. Roy Henning in the cave until noon, Island surrendered, taken to Agana in the bullpen. Dick Arvidson The bullpen appeared to be an abandoned warehouse or storage area and was extremely confining for the four or five hundred people that were being held there. There wasn't enough room for everyone to lie down to sleep at night. Sleep is conducted in shifts so some could lay down while others stood. Food and sanitation facilities were in very short supply. Reed Hubbard. The Japanese Army landed 15,000 strong, or forces of 400 Marines and sailors no match. The governor of Guam surrendered the island sometime before noon. We received orders from the U.S. military to turn in and surrender to the Japanese. Most men did this, although some waited until the next day and some straggled in weeks later. Slept the night of December 10th on a concrete floor in the Marine Corps billiard room. Bryant Sterling. Last night, December 9th, was uneventful. Art Okapinti and I got up about 5 a.m. and headed for the powder magazine again to get more food. We rode around the Marine barracks to observe the damage. Several buildings were badly damaged due to repeated bombing. Our barracks were still untouched. We stopped at the camp to pick up a suitcase. Plenty of food was left in the powder magazine. We headed for Agate with a big load. This was about 5.30 a.m. Wednesday, December 10th in Agate. We were intercepted by a man in a car looking for Fena Road. He says the Japanese have landed at Dungas Beach in Aganya and that he is fleeing for the hills. He appeared to be upset and nervous. We notified the rest of the contractors and headed up for the Fena Road ourselves. We reached Camp Number 2 at Mallup Falls and quickly unloaded the food. Planes were flying overhead in distance. We hid the truck. We took a trip to the top of the hill with Clark Eldridge, Reed Hubbard, Art Okapinti, and two natives to watch the bombing of Sumay. At the top of the hill, we were unable to see anything, but could hear the bombing and see a few planes in the distance. It was at this time we heard a terrific explosion at Cabras Island, followed by huge columns of black smoke rising hundreds of feet in the air. We were unable to tell whether the powder magazines had been bombed or if they had been deliberately blown up by our government officials. Cabras Island was blackened with smoke. A native claims he can live two years with his family on the taro route he has growing. I went to his hut for about an hour. It was now about 12 noon. I began to worry about the machete I left at Frank Borja's house. Frank had been a Chamorro carpenter foreman for the PNAB contractors. He and his family would be killed if the Japanese found the machete. I decided to take a truck and go get them, but driving was too dangerous due to the heavy bombing going on near Agat and Sumay. Hid the truck in the bushes and returned to the native's hut. I decided to walk to Frank Borja's house to get the machete. Along the way, I met a government pickup speeding for camp number two. Four individuals whom I was unacquainted with told me they had just been up to Petey on Cabras Island and just blew up two powder houses on the island. The large powder house had set fire to a 50,000 gallon diesel oil tank thereby causing the huge explosion and clouds of smoke we had noticed from the hill. They were the last men to flee to the hills. They were armed, pistols, several rifles, and one machine gun in back of their pickup. Instead of joining them, I continued walking on to Frank Bora's house, which was about seven or eight miles over rough country as I was was afraid to take the roads. The going was pretty rough, especially under the hot sun. I decided to hide the raincoat I was carrying and tossed it with a flashlight grown in the bushes. I got very thirsty, but I got lucky when I finally arrived near the coastline where the coconut trees were plentiful. I found an easy tree to climb and pulled down five or six fat coconuts. They were the sweetest i had ever had so far on the island. As I kept walking in the boondocks, I came across many farms, abundant with chickens, pigs and other stock plentiful but all the inhabitants had all fled for hills abandoned not a soul to be seen however when i walked past one thicket nearby i could hear several babies whisper whimpering and the hushed chatter of children being scolded to be quiet i finally emerged from the thickets onto a highway Luckily, I was within a short distance of Frank Bora's house. No one home, Frank and his family fled to the hills. I found my baggage in the back room still. I took out the machete and a straight razor and also my clothes. I hid my trunk in Bora's backyard. I could hear a plane flying low overhead. I was afraid of being bombed, so I ran out of the house. I wrapped the machete in my clothes in a burlap sack. I took six cans of sardines that I'd found in my trunk. Just as I make it back to the camp, a truck comes racing into the camp with three natives. They say we had to turn in ourselves and according to the governor, as the US has defeated the Japanese. I asked them who told them this. They said the Marines captain at agate. This sounded fishy to me as just then a Japanese plane flew right overhead. I decided to spurn their advice and instead go to camp number two and talk to the other contractor fellows before turning myself in. Being very fearful of being sighted by Japanese, I took to the hill route all the way up to Mallop Falls climbing high mountain range. I had to pass through 10 to 12 feet of high grass. I was exhausted. I lay down and slept some. Finally, I woke up and made my way to the highway just past the reservoir. I noticed many of our contractors' trucks and depot cars in the distance near the reservoir, but I was unable to tell whether they were being driven by Japanese or contractors. I decided to stay clear of them. I noticed two people hiding along the highway. They looked like natives as I got nearer, so I hailed them. It turned out to be Joe Hermes, one of the contractors, and Angelina, a native girl. They're heading for the hills too, so we decided to go together. We hear a truck coming towards us. We hid in the grass and saw it was being driven by natives to pick up whites. We hid in the grass until they passed by. We decided to go back to Camp number 2. I picked up the raincoat I had hid in the bushes. Joe found a bag of food. I noticed one of the natives had moved my truck. I found my old driver, Joe Guerrero, and we helped him unload the truck. I go to his hut where I ate a beef dinner. Joe Guerrero tells me Reed Hubbard, Clark Eldridge, Art Okapenti, and Bill Falvey had turned themselves into the Japanese. Clark Eldridge left orders with the natives to tell all the contractors to turn themselves in. I told Joe Guerrero and the other natives that I'm not turning myself in, so they offered me some food, mostly crackers and tins. Joe Hermes and Angelina were waiting for me at the bottom of a hill at a bridge. One of the contractors, Chevy V8s, trucks had overturned in the creek. Apparently the driver didn't want the Japanese to get it. Bill Falvey's pickup was parked on the other side of the bridge, still in good condition. I head up a steep hill with Joe Hermes, Angelina, and some other natives. It was about 5:30 p.m., and we had to hurry to make our camp. I met Frank Borja's wife at the top of the hill, also a fat bamboo, retired American resident of Guam, and Ken Hardy, who tell me they are going to turn themselves in. Most of us continued walking to the top of the next hill where we proceed to make our camp under some trees. I climbed a tree and brought down four or five green coconuts for drinking. We were hailed by natives who invited us to their camp in a nearby valley. It was a difficult approach to their camp and its entrance was hard to find. The natives had made their camp deeply hidden in the brush. They stretched blankets out overhead for shelter. There were three couples and four extra men comprising the personnel in this camp and also two babies. They were all natives. I recognized a couple of the extra men as the former mess boys at our camp. They were very congenial and all of them knew me by name. They offered me some dry clothes, but I only took some dry socks. They gave me soup and corned beef for supper. The natives sang all their latest songs and said their prayers before going to bed. Angelina made a fire and brewed some coffee. Natives have plenty of food. I spread out some blankets for me to sleep on. The mosquitoes were terrible. Not much sleep. Captain George J. McMillan U.S. Navy, Governor Guam, and Commandant of the Naval Station Guam. The first Japanese landing party, which came ashore on the beach to the eastward of Agana, was composed of naval personnel under command of a Commander Hayashi. The Army troops were landed immediately after at the same point and later in Opera Harbor. Three of the Japanese interpreters who came into Guam intimated that they were born and educated in the United States. The principal interpreter proudly stated that he had met Mae West and had shaken hands with Clark Gable. The Japanese refused to give their names when introduced. They said they were forbidden by their government to identify themselves. Major General Hori commanded the troops in Guam. He made his headquarters in the government house. I understood that the senior naval officer was Rear Admiral Kasuga. Both inspected the Naval Hospital while I was confined there. After the surrender, details were completed in the government house on the morning of December 10th, 1941. I remained in the government house under an armed guard until about 2030 when I was taken to the U.S. Naval Hospital. December 11th, 1941. Governor George J. McMillan. I was granted permission to return to the government house to get a change of clothing and toilet articles. Subsequent requests to obtain my personal effects from the government house were ignored or refused. United States officers were assembled in the Naval Hospital, enlisted men and civilians in an old Spanish building at the southwest corner of the plaza, which had been in use as quarters of the native Insular Force Guard. Charles F. Gregg. Up at 6.30 from the cement floor, washed up and had breakfast of rice and fish prepared by the Japanese. Moved out at 11 a.m. to Aganya by trucks. Passed several hundred, eight to nine hundred, soldiers and about fifty horses en route. Saw fifteen ships, including one heavy cruiser, several mine layers, and about eight merchant ships or transports. We were placed in civil jail, 53 of us. Toilet and shower facilities were good and we started to salvage clothing, books, etc. for which we did not know how long we were to stay there or where our food or clothing would come from. Evening meal was boiled rice and salmon prepared by ourselves and eaten out of the salvaged salmon cans. I slept on a table bench, 12 inches wide, and found it rather narrow. Harold Brinkerhoff. There are over 400 of us in the Insular Guard quarters. We slept about two deep. We had three good meals today. I was in charge of dishing out the food. It's quite a job to line up and feed over 400 men. Many try to come through the line twice. We can see a steady stream of natives arriving out in the plaza. They are lined up to register and get armbands for identification. The Japanese have had posters out notifying the natives that they must come in and register or be punished. Reed Hubbard Moved into the Agana jail, the hospital, and the Guam militia's barracks. They were very crowded, dirty, and gave us very little to eat. In fact, those of us in the jail only got some rice and some poor grade canned salmon for four days. About one third in the jail had to sleep on the damp concrete floor. Bryant Sterling woke up at about 6 a.m. and built a fire, brought in some coconuts for the rest of the camp. One of the natives goes out for water. We have soup, crackers and coffee for breakfast, also some luncheon meat. A Marine named Cohen comes into our camp. He's frightened and keeps telling us to put out the fire. We were told by some natives there are more contractors back in the hills, so I head for that direction. Cohen comes with me. Still have four machetes with me. Take a beautiful trail into the hills towards Marizo and passed by many farmhouses. We had to hurry as we were told the Japanese are not far behind us. We stopped at a picturesque stream to drink some water. We climbed to the top of a hill towards the native hut. We found Nathan Corley and Alton White, contractor fellows, in the hut. They had just decided to turn themselves in. Cohen and I decided to go part way with them as it wasn't out of our way. We all head for the Almagosa Road with one of the Native boys in the lead. We met Joe Morgenthaler and Davis at the Native's Hut about a mile from the Almagosa Road. We all talk it over and the whole bunch decides to turn ourselves in, including myself. I went back into the boondock and hid the machete and my money. It was difficult to find a good place in a hurry. Finally, I placed the money under a sloping tree Covered up with some canvas and gunny sacks. Caught up with the rest of the gang at Almagosa Road. I still had the straight razor in my pocket. Also, I saved about three dollars. I threw away the distributor cap from the Chrysler. I'm ready now for being captured. We were given a lift by some natives in a pickup. It was too much of a load for the truck, so I got off and walked. The driver gave us tomato juice and crackers before he left. We had a snack, then proceeded down the road towards the Almagosa Reservoir. Station wagon came up from around the, cor- around the road. Several of the fellows threw up their hands in a token of surrender, only to discover it was manned by natives, not the Japanese. Proceeded to the reservoir and got drunk, finished the crackers, and started walking towards the Agate. I was picked up by a native in a station wagon. On the way into town, several Marines who wanted to turn in joined me on the pickup. We passed through Agate, which is under Japanese guard. It was our first sight of any Japanese soldiers. We drove into the military barracks at Sume. There were hundreds of Japanese soldiers everywhere, plenty of guns and artillery. We were lined up and searched. We had to loosen all our clothes and drop our pants. They were looking for weapons. We were marched inside the barracks where about a dozen U.S. Marines were already waiting. We had to wait about 10 minutes. Then we were loaded aboard one of the contractor's trucks and started driving towards Aganya. The road was crowded with Japanese soldiers, cavalry, and artillery. Nice looking horses, but they needed currying. We passed Aguada. Japanese guards were stationed there. I noticed Francisco Cruz and his sons walking dejectedly along the road. Our Japanese driver was driving on the left side of the road. He almost collided with a native driver who was using the old system of keeping to the right of the road. We reached Agaña and were driven to the plaza in front of the governor's palace. We were lined up. A Japanese soldier slapped my arm because I had my arms, my hands in my pocket. We were marched to the Naval Hospital and found about 50 Marines and sailors already there lodged in the physiotherapy building. We five were the only contractors. We learned the others were lodged in the jail and behind the governor's palace. I had to help the Japanese move the iron beds. I ate supper at the hospital's mess. I slept on cardboard boxes on top of the concrete floor. December 12th, 1941, Charles F. Gregg. Breakfast of rice and fish. Found a razor so shave first time since Sunday. Mr. Eldridge talked me into growing a mustache. Washed some clothes and was able to get an extra pair of pants and a shirt from some marine clothing the Japanese threw into us. Found and started this diary. Dinner. Fish and rice and frijoles, made of flour, water, and salt. Rolled them with a bottle and fried or baked on top of a dirty stove. Talked with guards and started to learn some common Japanese words and numbers. Did some singing and learned words to the prisoner's song. Slept on cement floor. Not bad, but by no means good. Harold Brinkerhoff. We are still in the bullpen. I slept under a fellow's cot last night. Our number increases every day. Stories come in with each new arrival. I heard my native foreman, Jesus Untalan, is dead from Japanese bayonets. This proved false. I found out a couple of weeks later he was seriously wounded but lived. We heard that American submarines were operating off Guam. Some natives were supposed to have seen some Japanese sailors come in over the reef. They are survivors from their ship, which had been sunk two miles offshore. Some of the stories are surely good. Today, I accidentally overheard a Marine saying that he and his buddies had been on guard at a thousand steps when a boatload of Japanese landed. They slaughtered the whole lot. Well, I was at thousand steps after all the Marines had been withdrawn. No Japanese landed there. Roy Henning, moved to Dorn Hall. Dick Arvidsson, in the late part of the day, the prisoners were moved to Dorn Hall. Housing conditions at this location were somewhat better, as there was more floor space, but living is quite crowded and somewhat uncomfortable. December thirteenth, 1941, Governor George J. McMillan, about 8.15 on 13 December, I was taken to the Officers Club in company with Lieutenant Colonel McNulty, U.S. Marine Corps, and Commander Giles, U.S. Navy. The Japanese were occupying the club as quarters. I was interviewed by a Japanese Army Major. I requested permission to send a message to the American Red Cross or to my own government regarding the casualties, but this was refused. I had not been able to get a message off at the time of the invasion because it was reported to me that the Japanese were jamming all of our circuits. The cable station had been damaged by bombing on the previous day and was inoperative. The Major was very pleasant and in a joking mood. I mentioned the crowded condition of the prisoners. He accompanied us back to the hospital and looked over the situation. Shortly thereafter, the officers were sent to the KCK building, where conditions were worse. The Major informed me that I would have a conference with a Major General the following day, but this interview never took place. Harold Brinkerhoff. We are still in the bullpen, but we are supposed to be moved. Some say to the church, but we do not know. We had a good dinner. We were told to gather our belongings as we were going to move. It's simple for me. All I have to do is get my hat. We were moved over to Dorn Hall. It's much better and not so crowded. The natives were left in the bullpen. The contractors, armed forces and civilian employees are all here but separated into their respective groups. We're up on the pulpit and stage. They held Protestant services here on Sunday before the war. The floors are of Eiffel native hardwood and much softer than the cement. Charles F. Gregg, more rice and salmon for breakfast, getting pretty monotonous, not much energy or ambition, studied some Japanese, had a couple small swallows of whiskey the Japanese soldiers gave us. They had been out looting the bars, saw some of our boys at Dorner Hall through a crack in the door. Japanese told us that Hawaii, Midway, Wake, Guam, Manila, Hong Kong, and Singapore had already fallen, that San Francisco would be taken tomorrow, Chicago on Monday. Undercover reports told that bombing had occurred at all these places except Chicago, but that Guam alone had been taken. The USS Oklahoma was reported sunk in dry docks at Honolulu that 360 soldiers were killed by a bomb. Rice and salmon for dinner. Fred Oppenborn helps me make a mattress out of a fishnet by tearing off the sinkers and floats. Had a swell sleep on the floor. This concludes episode four of the We Raise the Stars and Stripes Over Japan podcast. Copyright 2019, Mark Stephen Schwartz. No portion of this story can be copied duplicated or used in reference in any way, directly or indirectly, without the expressed written permission of Mark Stephen Schwartz. All rights reserved.